You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. Building projects require a blueprint, a picture of the finished product, something to consistently reference during construction, a goal to work towards, a guide to follow. But what is the blueprint for the church? What picture is the reference for God's people? What is the guide for the Christian life? Jesus promises to build his church, but how? The blueprint for the church isn't a list of policies and procedures. It's not a plan for elaborate sanctuaries and classrooms, and it's not tips and tricks for increasing church attendance and budget. The blueprint for the church is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, who is equal to God. Jesus, who became a servant. Jesus, who died a sinner's death, though he was innocent. Jesus, who God resurrected and highly exalted. Jesus, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, he is Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a picture of humility and glory, a cross and a crown, sacrifice and exaltation, and it is the finished work Paul points to in the letter to the Philippians. It's the picture he looks to as he lives his life. It's the reference the Philippians followed to shape their church. The gospel is the blueprint we have to live our lives and build Christ's church. Good morning, Gospel Community Church. It's good to be back with you guys this morning. If you're visiting, my name is Rick. And I've been tasked by the members and elders of our church to lead our church through preaching and teaching as my primary job. And so I'm thankful for that task and that duty that I get to do here at Gospel Community Church. I've been on sabbatical for the past three months, so this is my first morning back with you guys. And so I, I mean this with full sincerity. It's good to see you guys, and I love being back, and I love our church family. We don't have biological family close by, and so in a lot of ways, church family takes on a whole different meaning when you don't have that. And so I look around and see my brothers and sisters in Christ and people that are truly our family members, and I'm grateful for that and grateful that God has tasked me to lead this church family. And I want to do that faithfully, and I want to do that well. So one of the ways that we do that well is through preaching and teaching God's word faithfully. So if you would, open to the book of Philippians. It's where we've been in and where you guys have been in for quite some time. We've been walking through a series that's going to be coming to an end. And so let me announce where we're going next, just to give you guys a heads up and allow you to also prepare for where we're headed in the future. Start reading the book of Romans, the epistle of Romans, because that's where we're going to be next. And so starting in October, we're going to dive headfirst into Romans. Let me say this. I can't think of a more timely letter right now for us to read in our culture than Romans. Why? Because so many people, whether they know it or not, are caught up in uh, anthropology, the, the existence of humans, the origin of humans, where we came from, and how life works best, and who we are. So we're asking those types of questions. The fundamental problem with asking the question of who we are is first asking this question, who is God? Who are we in light of who God is? And so Romans clearly lays that out for us and makes the gospel so explicitly clear. So that's where we're going to be going. You guys can start reading through and rereading through and even listening through Romans. Can't encourage that enough. This morning, our main point, our, <clears throat> the main thing I want you to walk away with is without the gospel, we become hostile. Without the gospel, we become hostile. So if the gospel is not central and primary in our lives, it's not what we're built on, it's not what we're anchored in, it's not our foundation, it's not the very center of our being and purpose, by nature, we become hostile. 
And, and what I mean by that is hostility starts to take place in life, in our relationships, in our families, in our friendships. And the byproduct of that is things fall apart in society. So what we actually need to bring unity, to bring healing, but ultimately to bring peace is the gospel. Only the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, reconciles us to God, bringing us at peace with God, but also starts to heal and bring peace in our relationships. So without the gospel, we become hostile. That's where we're going this morning as we dive into Philippians chapter four. So turn there with me, and here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna read verses two, two through nine right now. And here's what I'm gonna ask you guys to do. I want you to read verses four and seven with me. So when we get to four, we're going to read it together. When we get to verse seven, we're going to read it together. Paul's instruction, even to first Timothy is an exhortation to publicly read scripture. I like to figure out things that we can do to spite Satan and tick him off. And one of those things is read aloud God's word as a treasure. And so we're going to do that as a family today. We're going to be reading from the ESV. And I think it's going to be up here if you guys don't have it in your hand. So I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. All right, guys, together. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Again, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Father, we thank you for this morning and for your word. We literally get to open up your word. We get to hear your voice. And we praise you for the gift that is. A gift that we can oftentimes overlook and not realize. That it's in your word that we are grown up into the likeness of Christ. It's in your word that teaches us how life is lived best. And it's in your word, ultimately, that we see how we have peace with you and peace with one another. Father, we recognize this, and I do myself, that we can become petty and selfish and self-centered and focus on everything in life that we have and don't have and aren't getting. Realign our hearts this morning with the gospel. Realign our hearts this morning with your grace. Realign us with the reality of this. We deserve nothing from you and have been given everything in Christ. Reshape our worlds, reshape our minds, reshape our hearts, reshape our church family this morning to be in alignment and unity in the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, grab a piece of paper or your phone, whatever you can write on, and, and I want you guys to do something for me. I want you to write down, first thing, three to five things. Please don't be too cool to do this. Write down three to five things that you really care about. Three to five things. I'll give you a moment to do that. Jesus, that's going to be number one. So, so we're going to recognize that that's, that's number one. So let's say you don't have to write that down. Three to five things inside of Christ is number one. If you're visiting, you're with us, you're not a Christian, you weren't going to write that anyways, we're stoked you're here. Thanks for being here. Next, if you're sitting next to your spouse, 
please write spouse, okay? All right, I don't want 25 calls about how my husband wrote truck or something before spouse. So just saying, be wise, maybe write spouse. Maybe if you wrote truck and you're single, that might be why, so. <laughs> Three to five things you really care about. Three to five things. Also write down a few things, three to five, that you really enjoy doing. Man, like, I like doing this. You can talk about these if it is stable time this week. I'm not sure. But talk about these with your gospel community. Looks like it is stable time. So these are things we can talk about. Things you really care about, things you love, things you really enjoy doing. Now, as you look at your list, what if I said right now, you, you would have to white out, scratch out, mark out the things on your list besides one. And no matter what, for the rest of your life, you were never going to be able to do those things or those things wouldn't be in your life anymore. How would you feel? How would you respond? What would, what, what, what would your emotional state be? Yeah, here's the thing. If you ever want to know what your idols are or what your little gods are in your life, you can start removing things or having others remove things or mess with things in your life. And the thing that brings out the most emotions is probably what's mastering you. The very thing that turns up a lot of anger, a lot of sadness, and a lot of grief are the very things that are probably mastering you that have been moved from a place of, man, what an incredible gift this is into, man, this thing's my God that's giving me all of my hope and all of my foundation, and all of my security. I can't lose it. Reminds me of that song, I don't know who the original author was, but I know Leanne Rhymes sang it. But here's the lyrics. Just listen to this. This is why country music, best music in the world, horrible theology. How do I get through one night without you? If I had to live without you, what kind of life would that be? Oh, I need you in my arms, need you to hold. You are my world, my heart, my soul. If you ever leave, baby, you would take everything good in my life. Tell me now, how do I live without you? How do I breathe without you? How would I ever survive? There would be no sun in my sky. There would be no love in my life. There'd be no world left for me. My goodness. Do you hear that? That's not beautiful. That's awful. And let me explain. When someone relationally takes the place of savior in your life and your savior breaks up with you, your savior leaves you, your savior dies. Do you die too? And is it because you've elevated something in life that's a gift? My wife is my bride, my best friend, my, my loyal companion. She knows me better than anyone else, but she is not my savior. I get to hold her hand. I get to do life beside her. But she is not the one that's giving me my ultimate sense of hope and worth and security and foundation in life. Boy, what a pressure that would put on her, a crushing one that she couldn't sustain nor would I want her to put on me. But we do this with other things in life. We do this with simple things. I know our audience, we do this with working out. We do this with jobs. We do this with success. We do this with careers. And, and, and we place these things and they become central in our lives that we're holding to, that give us our happiness and our satisfaction. And then what happens? Relational strife and turmoil inside of our souls and inside of our relationships because we are putting something besides Jesus Christ and his work and his life and his death and his resurrection at the center of our lives. And I know that sounds odd to you and absurd if you're not a Christian and you're here investigating the claims of Christianity. You're saying, 
that what I need to do is, is put this man and everything this man has done at the center of my life for things to make sense. I'm saying absolutely wholeheartedly. And here's what I would say. If everything on your list can be gone like that, how safe of a foundation is it? Your eternity, your security in Christ can never be removed for eternity. What a better and more awesome foundation is that? So if that is our foundation, that Christ is the one holding us, we have a lot more safety than anything else that we're holding on to. And when we get to chapter four, verse two, what we start to see is we start to see relational breakdown. Let's look again at verse two. Because something else is taking place in Euodia and Syntyche, there's something else taking place in the church at Philippi that has now moved to central. How do we know that? There's relational breakdown, there's hostility. Something else is driving and compelling them. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, also true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life without the gospel, or if we forget the gospel, we become hostile. We're seeing it here. Something else has become central. We're not told what it is, which I sometimes appreciate. Here is the truth. These women, their names are written down in the Bible. It's a big enough deal that Paul addresses it, but not enough to where we get all the juicy details. Maybe it was over coffee, maybe it was over pews, maybe it was over chairs, maybe it was something that small. But the reality is, is those types of things create a lot of animosity and bitterness inside the church. Whatever it was, it was breaking down the fabric of what the local church is supposed to do and what the local church is supposed to be and reflect to the world. So it's a big enough deal for Paul, for Paul to address it. And, and he's saying, I'm, I'm exhorting, I'm entreating, I'm pleading, knock this off. He's even reaching out to someone and saying, please intercede. Be an agent of reconciliation, an agent of peace, helping these women to do what? To agree in the Lord. Paul uses this elsewhere in Philippians. To be united, to be of one mind, to have the same thing in common. And remember the Lord. He also says at the end of this, whose names are written in the book of life. You see what Paul does there? There's disunity, there's relational fracture that's happening. Why? At the core of who we are, we're selfish. We're selfish. Example, when's the last time you ever got mad at someone for meeting all of your needs? Like someone comes and, and they're like, here's this, here's this, here's this, here's this. You love that because they are increasing your happiness and human flourishing. We get upset when we look at people and say, you're not meeting my needs because at the core, we're selfish. And we bring this into church on Sundays because we primarily can think about the church being a group of people that exist for me to consume something from and meet all of my needs, which is a misconception of what the church is supposed to be. And so if we're selfish at the core and we see that play out in relationships, where does this come from? Christianity provides a worldview that gives an answer to that. We call it sin. And people go, I don't like that word. But the reality is, is that Christianity provides a framework to say, hey, here's what's wrong with, with the world. Here's what's wrong in the world is there's something called sin. That God created a world without sin. Man and woman decided that we were going to live our own way and so sin entered and then what happened as a result of that is we started grabbing hold of everything else and trying to make it our God. And then we became really selfish. You know this if you're a parent. By the age three, by the time your kids reach the age three, they will have either pushed down their sibling, maybe bit them, maybe taken something from them and I hope, I hope, that they didn't learn that from you. 
It's intrinsically wired in. There's something wrong, and we call that sin. What Paul is addressing here, and notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't give a 10-step process. He doesn't even give the details, because I don't think Paul wants us to be focused on what the relational breakdowns and details are. What he wants us to know is the answer is always the gospel. He, he, he could lay out, here's what was going on, and so when this happens, pragmatically, you want to address it this way. He doesn't do it. He doesn't give us the details. What he does is say, remember your unity in the Lord, and remember where your names are written in the book of life. What does that do to us? If you understand the beauty and majesty and glory of a holy God and your inability to try to earn his acceptance, if you understand how far you've missed the mark, if you understand that trying to bridge a gap to God would be like us trying to build a bridge from here to Mars, it just wouldn't work. It's a futile attempt. Us trying to do something through our own behavior is never going to pan out. It's never going to be enough. We're not going to be able to accomplish that. And if we realize that we are in desperate need of someone to do that for us, and we realize that Christ stepped into humanity to bridge the gap, to be what we couldn't be, a perfect human, to do what we couldn't do, live a selfless life, to do what we couldn't do and seek the needs of other people above his own needs. When we realize that he stepped in to do that, but to also pay the punishment for the ways we failed, and that now as a result of that, we don't earn it, we don't pay anything for it, we don't do just some subtle works to try to get it. We realize that it was a free gift to us given by God's grace and our names go from the book of hell, let's be honest, to the book of eternal life. We go, whoa, why me? Why would God transfer me into his kingdom, into his family for all eternity? Wow. If we understand it correctly, here's the reality. Relationally, we don't have a right to be bitter. Relationally, we don't have a right to lay claim to something that someone else owes us, including an apology. If our love, church, speaking to the church family, if our love is to reflect that of Christ, that means that my pursuit of you isn't until you say sorry to me. Maritally speaking, relationally speaking, my pursuit of you isn't contingent upon apology. My pursuit isn't contingent upon anything you do. If my love looks like Christ, I pursue you at your worst moments. What happened here? Euodia and Syntyche forgot that mindset. They don't have a right to be bitter. They don't have a right to lay claim. They don't have a right to say, this should have been done this way or this way, and you didn't do it. You didn't meet my needs. They have lost focus of what their mission is. It's not rallying people to see their point of view and their perspective of why they're angry and bitter. It's rallying people to say there's a lost and dying world, and we're sitting around wasting time being ticked off at people and bitter, and their souls that are perishing. This is why Paul's like, this, this has got to be squashed. Spurgeon says this, I'm glad, I'm glad that we do not know what the quarrel was about. I'm usually thankful for ignorance on such subjects. But as a cure for disagreements, the apostle says, rejoice in the Lord always. People who are happy, especially those who are very happy in the Lord, are not apt either to give offense or take offense. Their minds are so sweetly occupied with higher things that they are not easily distracted by the little troubles which naturally arise among such imperfect creatures as we are. Joy in the Lord is the cure for all discord. <laughs> What's being said is this. We can lay aside bitterness. Think about this reality. I don't like when people disrespect me. I don't like it. I don't like when someone flips me off and takes me off. I'm going to break that finger. Like... I don't like it. Why? 
because I think in my world that someone owes me respect, that I can demand that from them. And if they don't give it to me, a boss, anyone, that you have stepped into my world and not given me the respect that I deserve. Let me ask you guys, does that sound humble? Sounds nice, right? Someone you'd want to spend some time with? (laughs) That's what we do. Think about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I was reading the other day in John. When the high priest slapped Jesus, the irony of the high priest slapping the ultimate high priest, that Jesus Christ had his beard ripped out, that he was slapped and spit on by the, by the very people that he gave life to. And somehow I, as a finite human being, can lay claim to some sort of respect that I deserve when he gave up all respect and dignity so that I would be welcomed into his family. And then I go, I have a right to be bitter. I have a right not to be forgiven, not according to God. He says, if you want to be forgiven, you must forgive others. Paul, Paul gives a logical sequence in the book of Ephesians. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. He says this in Ephesians 4.31. The author of Hebrews says, bitterness is where so much problem stems from. It's, it's, it's like the root problem. Bitterness leads to wrath, outbursts, that anger, that leads to clamor and slander. We're going to start publicly humiliating someone, hurting them. That leads to malice, the proliferation of all evil, hatred and murder on our brothers and sisters in Christ. Meanwhile, we say we have the greatest bond in common, Jesus Christ. You see the inconsistency? That's what gets Paul fired up. Church family, let let me give you a challenge right now. Before you go to bed tonight, if you have an offense against your brother and sister of Christ, text them, call them, reach out to them. Don't let that continue to fester. Go to Christ and say, Lord, I, I look at the way that you were disrespected. Help me. Set aside my bitterness. Help me to forgive. I'm really struggling. Please help me with this. When we understand what the gospel is, it's the good news of all Christ has done and what he's given us, then we understand the gospel doesn't allow us to be hostile. When we have peace with God, we start to understand, I didn't deserve that, so I can be at peace with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I would say, settle it today. And and, and if you're like, man, but I'm just struggling with the bitterness and the respect thing, As a human, you're longing for respect. You're longing for honor. You're longing for approval. Jesus Christ has all of it that you'll ever need and that'll actually satisfy your soul. Next, he says, and he gives us something very practical to do. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So he says, rejoice. To relational strife, to whatever's going on, maybe there's a storm in your life. Paul's instructions are rejoice. And we're like, come on, Paul. I don't think you know my circumstances. This is a man who for two years has been shackled to a Roman guard in prison. A man who used to go around and plant churches. A man who was on the go is now bound to a Roman soldier. And he's, and he's saying rejoice. He's not saying rejoice in your circumstances. He's saying rejoice in the God who is in control of every circumstance in life. Because that God is good. You can go back and listen. I preached on this text a few years back. It's, it's under a, a title, uh, Tracing Our Roots. The title of that sermon is Soul, God is in Control. What I'd say is this. It's not just for relational strife, but in the storms of life. Paul's words are true. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. How do we rejoice when there's pain and sorrow in life? It reminds me of the story of Dr. Jonathan Gibson. 
On March 17, 2016, Dr. Gibson's daughter, who's a remarkable scholar and theologian, his daughter was born. Her name was Layla. And his little son, Ben, went to the hospital to meet his little sister, Layla. Even had a giraffe to give his sister as she came out. He held her, stillborn. With no life in her body, Benjamin started asking question after question to his father. Will mom ever give birth to a baby with life? Does Layla not like us? To these questions, Dr. Gibson didn't respond with philosophical thoughts. He came back to a very simple root, that God is good. In fact, out of this came a book, which I highly recommend. It's a kid's book. It's called The Moon is Always Round. And throughout the book, what, what he explains to his son, Benjamin, is sometimes we can't see the moon. Sometimes it's a sliver. Sometimes we can't see it at all. But he said this, no matter what, we know that the moon is always round. And we know that God is always good. When Paul says rejoice, he's t- telling us rejoice in the truth of this. We serve a good God who's in control. In control of all the details of life. Look at Mary watching her son die on the cross, I would imagine the feeling would be one of out of control. The apostles, whose hero, who was going to champion and come in and take over Rome, their ideology that they built for Jesus was trampled. It all looked out of control. Three days later, a king walks out of the tomb and says, I'm in control. Here's the good news. God is in control of every detail in every one of our lives, and he's working it all for his glory and our good. When we understand that in God's goodness, that we have and we receive access to, our souls are not in turmoil, they're at ease, they're not hostile because of the gospel. Let me also say this. It says here to let your reasonableness be known. It's oftentimes translated as gentleness. When others don't know the pain and the difficulty of what you've gone through in life, maybe they can't relate or something like that, or there's stuff that's going on inside of the church. What Dr. Stephen Lawson says is what Paul is is pleading with us to do here is look over the offenses of others. (laughs) Like look over the offenses of others. Since God in Christ looks over all of your offenses and labels you faultless, guiltless, blameless, surely we can look over the offense of others that they have committed. He also goes on to say in verse six, do uh, the Lord is at hand again, the God who's with us, in the midst of our trials, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What does Paul say? Pray. That's not superficial. That's not trite. That's like the real deal. Paul says, hey, pray. Exercise the gift you have because of the gospel. If Jesus has reconciled you to God and you are one with God, that means you have divine, direct access to God. When we pray in Jesus' name, it's not some prosperity name it and claim it thing, some genie thing like in Jesus' name of Ferrari. It's not anything like that. When we pray in Jesus' name, what it's actually doing is this. We are praying in the status of Jesus Christ. When we go to God, we go in his status and his record, loved, blameless, faultless, pure. And what it actually means is that we pray with the authority of Christ. Christ wants us back in authority to have access to God. When we go and pray, you pray to the one who has all power and all dominion and all control over everything in life. That's who we're praying to. Church, I would love to see if every Sunday downstairs at 920 for pre-service prayer, that it was just as packed down there as it is in here because we literally have the gift of prayer. We can talk to God about anything, anything at all. 
and to be praying for our children, to be praying for our city, to be praying, we get to go to the God who has all power and all authority to save and transform lives and relatives and plead with him and say, Lord, God, move and work. So the interesting thing that we can look at the text here and see, look here, by, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Well, that's weird. Shouldn't we wait till God answers prayers? No, because once we know the God that we pray to, we know that he's going to bring the perfect outcome that we wouldn't know how to pray for. He's going to answer our prayers the way that they need to be answered. He's going to do that. So when we go to God, we can already give him praise for what he's going to do because he's going to bring the best outcome. Man, that's good. That is really good to know that God works in that way. And then he says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let me say this. I know this. When it says do not be anxious about anything, that makes some of us anxious, like me, who are medicated for anxiety. So there's a very physical part of this text that makes us go, come on, Paul, what's going on here? Let me say this. What it actually means here is to be troubled with cares. And worry actually comes from the uh, old English word that means to strangle out. And so it means to be so consumed with all the cares and all the details of everything in life that it's actually drowning out joy in life. I'm not talking about chemical or chronic anxiety that, that people struggle with. It's to say, I'm so caught up in control. Control is my God. Remember the thing I said that, that, that we are holding on tight to that has mastery over our emotions? I am a control freak. And here's what sucks. I don't like you guys to know it, so I just act like I'm cool and calm on the surface. And underneath, those duck feet are going a million miles a second. Why? I don't like things to be out of control. Neither is our culture. Weather, we can predict that by like 10 days. We can plan our vacations around it. School lunches, they put that out now ahead of time. Personality tests. Why do we take personality tests? If I can figure out my spouse, maybe I can control my spouse. Whenever my spouse seems displeased with me and there's unhappiness in our marriage, that makes my world feel out of control. So if I can fix them, then it'll help me to be at ease with myself. That's fun. Control. All of life, we are trying to gain control. Why? Let me say this. God created a world to be in control. The way that we're going to get that back is not through us trying to take gain of it, but recognize the God who is in control, who's restoring all things, and one day will come back to reign here, and everything will be back ordered the way that it was. We can trust him that he cares about us enough to care about all the small details in our life. To all my type A brothers and sisters in Christ, that's good news, really good news. Last, he says this, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What is Paul doing here? Paul is telling us to do this. Finally, brothers, finally, church family, Think about this. Think about the things that are commendable. Think about the things that are true, that are honorable, that are just, that are pure. Think about the things that are excellent. Naturally, we can be cynical and we think about all that's wrong in the world, all that's wrong with people, all that's wrong with our spouse, all, all that's wrong with our communities, all that's wrong with our church family, all the things that's wrong. And Paul says, think about what's true, what's lovely, what's pure, what's commendable. Think about those things. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that when God looks at you, he sees a man or a woman who is true, who is honorable, who is pure, who is lovely, who is commendable, and who is excellent? Do you think that? Because this is the reality. 
you might have a steady diet of wallowing in your own thoughts about what you think about yourself, your own shame and your own guilt. But the reality is this. When God looks at you, the lens that he looks and sees you with, he sees a man and woman in Christ who is true because Jesus was the way and the truth and the life. He looks and sees a, a, a man or woman who's honorable, who is just because Jesus was honorable in every one of his actions and he lived the life of perfect justice. When he looks at you, he sees someone who is lovely and commendable, worthy of praise, beauty, excellence, a crown. <laughs> Why? Because Jesus gave all of those things to his bride, all of those things to you. And so in God's eyes, you are never gonna be anything other than those things. When God looks at you, he sees a selfless man and woman. He sees someone not striving for control. He sees someone who is lovely and commendable and worthy of praise, excellence, because he sees the work that his son did and what he gave to you. And then what he says is dwell on those things. If you want to grow up in Christ, start dwelling on Christ. If you want to stay in self-loathing and become a very cynical curmudgeon, focus on yourself more. If you want to look like Christ, look to Christ. Start beholding his beauty that he's given to us. And then what we do in light of that is we start looking at one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we start saying, Lord, I thank you. I'm just going to say as an example, God, I praise you for my brother Ian. I praise you for my brother Brad, for DJ, that these men are pure in your eyes, that they are lovely, that they are commendable. If there's bitterness, you start praying for them and pray for them by name. Remove that to help me see them as you see me. Because the gospel doesn't allow me to be hostile to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because I see what Christ has done. I see what he's given. I see that I don't deserve any of these titles. Honorable, worthy of praise, but they're all mine. And they've been given to me freely. We realize this, that we hold something better as Christians. If you've been tuning in, we hold something better. Something that gives us peace. But what we ultimately realize is this is that what the gospel gives is this, is this not us holding on to this relationship and these things or grasping a hold of something else. The gospel is this. It's not you holding on to God. It's God saying, I'm never letting go of you. I'm holding on to you. You're not hanging on by a thread. God grabs you, wraps his arms around you and says, I'm with you. Through the thick of it, every storm, every trial, I'm here. Here's what's amazing. Years ago, and with this story, my oldest daughter, she was probably three or four, and I used to like take her to the mall because they had rides there that we would, well, we wouldn't ride, but she would ride them. And around time of like Christmas season and Easter, she was terrified to go in there because Santa Claus was there. So whenever we would go in the mall, she wouldn't walk anymore. She, she, would, she would grab hold of me. She would latch on as tight as she can. She wouldn't even look that way. And so I, I held her and I whispered in her ear the most endearing pastoral thing I could see. I was like, just know if Santa Claus comes in here, you gotta whoop his butt. And so I whispered that to her. It was so loving, it was a sweet moment. And then I was like, same thing with the Easter bunny. She's like, you would, you would take out the Easter bunny. I was like, oh, take that weird thing out in a second. <laughs> but whatever it is, maybe we should listen to our kids. Our kids are on to something, okay? So anyway, she would latch on with all of her might and hold me. And, and, and I would hold her. The reality is, is the same thing that, that Joey did as a three-year-old, we do with other things in life. We start grabbing hold of things that give me control, relationships that give me worth and approval and all those things. And what God is saying, you can keep latching on, but here's the reality. The place you're gonna find your ultimate worth and meaning is this, to know that I've latched on and I'm holding you. I'm with you, I've given you a security, a foundation, an identity that can't be rock, shake, or broken. It's lasting. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that the gospel doesn't give us room to be hostile. 
It doesn't give us room or a place to be bitter or unforgiving. What it does is it allows us to recognize that we have peace with you. And because of that, we can be at peace with one another. Thank you. Lord, the things that we're holding on to that are giving us worth, comfort, peace, relationships, anything like that, Father, free us up and let us know that you're holding us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.